tonight in the second chapter of James, James chapter 2. James's primary concern in this letter to these Christian congregations, congregations is that the way they are living their lives, of course, does not show the evidence that their faith is real. He's encouraged them to count it all joy when they endure trials, mainly because their God is with them, not against them, but for them. God isn't trying to do bad things to them. That's not what's happening when they go through trials, but is instead, in fact, the father of lights from whom comes every good and perfect gift. Many of them have been deceived to believe that God is tempting them, making their lives hard rather than supporting them. He's told them, James has, that they must be doers of the word, not hearers. All this is flowing out of the idea of faith. Meaning there's a disconnect apparently between what they say they believe and what they confess to be true and how they are living. And in the beginning of chapter 2, what is perhaps the main way in which all of this comes out is with the sin of partiality. That's kind of the main place where he's questioning their faith, if you will. They say they believe in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who served the poor and met their needs and loved them. How they treat the poor is completely the opposite the way that Jesus treated the poor. Even visibly in their gatherings, they're mistreating the poor and the disadvantaged among them. And this is the occasion for James's discussion on justification. And this discussion, or the discussion about justification, has been a major issue, a major issue for the church Ever since, it is the main reason why there is a difference between Catholic and Protestant. And we'll talk about that a little tonight. I I want to address this debate tonight that the idea that the debate being that James contradicts Paul on justification. That's that's the alleged uh, accusation here. And so Paul teaches that we're made right with God one way. James teaches that we're made right with God another way. But we want to see the text in its proper light. Context is everything. There is a way given to us, provided for us, to understand what both Paul and James are saying about justification that respects both letters and upholds both James chapter 2 and Romans chapter 4, which we'll see in a few moments is kind of the uh, kind of ground zero for this debate. The main principle, however, in the text stands Faith in Jesus Christ for salvation will inevitably have an effect on the way we live our lives and the person we become. So let me pray and we'll get into this here. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that no matter what is going on or what is happening to us or around us, this word is constant because that's what you are. And so, Lord, I pray that each one of us tonight would learn to believe your word. And to trust in what you've said, help me preach to assist in this. Help us all here that we might walk in light of this passage, in light of your grace for us in Christ. I ask this in his name. Amen. So let me begin here at verse 14, and I'll just read to verse 17 to begin. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So clearly, if you can remember from last Sunday night, James is not done talking to them about this massive issue of the sin of partiality, which he addressed back in verses 1 through 13. So apparently there's something so contradictory about mistreating the poor while claiming the name of Christ that we find out here whether or not one had faith in Christ at all could be challenged on the basis of that alone. So it's, it's so unchristlike to mistreat the poor that James is willing to question whether or not they're in the faith at all because that's how they behave. We do not take seriously enough the attitude and actions of Jesus and Scripture towards the poor and what that uniquely says about the genuineness of our faith, which was also the problem in the time of James, obviously. So he begins by questioning whether or not a faith that is not shown by the works one is doing can be considered real faith. And then he asks another rhetorical question in verse 14, to which the obvious answer is no. A faith that is dead cannot save. And a dead faith is defined as a faith that is not proven to be there by the good works someone does. And James is speaking very specifically here about this issue in verses 15 and 16. Let me read those again. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, so uh, clearly he's still in the vein of verses 1 through 13, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so this alludes to the fact that they probably practice uh, a certain liturgy, in their church gatherings, a part of which uh, included the blessing to one another, go in peace. We were up last night. Um, it's in, in Wheeling. You go out. Uh, is it Lawrenceville? Is it a beautiful Catholic church out there? Is it, am I saying that right? Is it Lawrenceville or something? What was that called last night, you guys? Okay, thanks. Um, uh, very. It's a beautiful Catholic church. I can't remember what it was called. But as you're leaving... The sign says, uh, go in peace, right? Or, or peace be unto you or something like that. So that's a, that's a long-standing church tradition um, to, to, as you part, say to one another, go in, go in peace. And James is calling them on that. And he's saying, what good is it to further malign the poor and needy among you by after you've mistreated them in the way that you shove them aside to tell them, go in peace, when you know they don't have enough to eat and they don't have good clothing at all. They're, they're literally very poor. Not only do you devalue them and treat them poorly with your sin of partiality, he says, you also devalue and mistreat them by ignoring the needs you know they have. And James points to that sin and says, you all do know, don't you, that faith without works is dead. It's of no use. Now, we need to take some time here this will take the, the majority of our time tonight to sort through this. Because on the surface, it does look like there's a major contradiction in the Bible. A contradiction so significant, in fact, that all biblical Christianity, all salvation, stands or falls on how you, on what side you fall on in this issue of justification. In other words, this is not one of the issues in the Bible we can agree to disagree on. This is about how a person is saved, whether it's by grace, through faith, apart from works, or whether it's a mixture of faith and works. That's what's at stake here. That's Again, that's why 
That's the main reason why there is what we know today as Roman Catholicism versus the Protestant church, which we are a part of uh, anything, most everything that's not Catholic, with the exception of the Coptic church, the, the Eastern Orthodox church, Greek Orthodox. With, with a few exceptions, everything that's not Catholic is Protestant. We protested their view of justification, starting with, of course, Martin Luther. But now, and for some of you, I hope it's not, but for some of you, this may be kind of a drag because you already completely understand the difference. I'm not being, I'm not patronizing. I'm being serious. Some of you may have this settled and understand, uh, but for others, it, it may be necessary to hear this, and it's always worth reaffirming the truth, right? So James 2 is brought up very often in interdenominational debates among Protestants, right? So even Protestants disagree on the particulars of this, but especially there's a debate in Protestant versus Catholic on how a person is actually made righteous before God. How is a person actually justified and therefore put into a right relationship with him? I would say tonight, the main reason I'm not a Catholic, the, the biggest issue I have with, with, with Catholicism really isn't the Mary stuff. I mean, that's bad, right? It's bad to deify Mary. Mary would be uh, disgusted by this. So that's a major issue. However, the major, capital A major issue is right here. How they believe a person is made right with God versus what Paul believes about how a person is made right with God. Is justification through faith alone apart from works, as Paul says? We've been talking about this in Romans. Is James saying, uh, Paul, you need to be a little more specific. It's technically not grace through faith alone. What we believe, we believe in our church that justification is not received by works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In the Roman Catholic tradition... Being put into a right relationship with God initially is received by faith, but it has to be increased and added to by works or you will not be fully justified. So for them, works play a role in adding something to faith. Uh, they would say it specifically that uh, faith has to be formed by love eventually or you're not justified. So you are constantly trying through enough confession and uh, Liturgy and all these different rites and things like that, and, and you're, you're trying to basically earn your salvation or, or at least avoid purgatory by doing enough good. And now that's a very truncated, you know, uh, brief definition of their view of justification. If you do, you don't have to take my word for that, you can read in like the the Roman Catholic Catechism will say it very specifically how they believe in. Justification, that's probably available for free online if you want to get into that. But even among Protestants tonight, though, there's significant disagreement over this text. And I think many, if, if not most Christians, often point to James 2 to sort of qualify the Apostle Paul so that nobody gets it in their head that it's really by faith alone. You don't have to do anything to be put into a right relationship with God. That's very threatening to people and insulting to people and scary for people. And so even Protestants are may back off the gas a little bit and say, yeah, but I mean, you still have to do something right. And, and you'll, you'll hear the fear in people's voices. I still have to do something. Well, what are you talking about? Are you saying you have to do something to be justified? And if you're saying that, unfortunately, what you're doing is without meaning to, is endorsing the Catholic position 
on justification. It's because of this text that many would say, see, you, you can't stress that you're saved by grace alone. Because if there aren't works, you're not saved. Again, to, to talk like this about how we're made right with God is to endorse the Catholic position that justification is in fact not by faith alone, but by a mixture of faith and works. And that's what we need to get to in our minds. I, I do think, and I don't mean that because Tony Romano is so wise, I mean because talking to people, hearing people, hearing their, their questions, their fears, or their opposition to this idea, I do think most Christians believe deep down inside in their hearts that it is a mixture of both. And so they look at a text like this and wonder, am I doing enough good works to say that I'm saved? And is that what James is talking about? Is he saying something different than what Paul is? And so we need to reconcile these two passages. I think most of us believe somewhere deep down inside that it's both. So you're justified, you're put into a right relationship with God by a mixture of faith, mostly faith, mostly grace, but also some works. And so let's address the text in front of us. It is difficult, no question, to reconcile, although I don't really like that word, it assumes the Bible contradicts itself. It doesn't. But it is difficult to make sense of Romans 4, in particular, in light of James 2, or vice versa. Because as you know, we have statements in Romans 4 about justification. In particular, how a person is actually justified. And Paul uses Abraham and the, the, the patriarch, the father of Israel, to make his case that we're justified by grace through faith apart from works. Paul is talking about how justification works, and he says this. I'll reread this from Romans 4, verses 1 through 6. And, and you'll hear the stark difference on the surface here in a moment. This is Romans 4 again. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as gift or as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul gives an example from the Old Testament that people are put into a right relationship with God, justified by faith. He cites a text that explicitly says this, that Abraham was counted as righteous, justified when he believed the word of God. And Paul not only says his faith was counted as righteousness, he also says that Abraham did not work. There were no works involved in Abraham's being put into a right relationship with God. Now, when we read that, it appears to be very clearly teaching the doctrine, the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith alone. And I believe that is what Romans 4 is teaching. But now look at James 2. Let's pick it up in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, 
Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Isn't it amazing when you read those two side by side, how contradictory they sound? They literally sound like they're saying two different things. Who is right? Who is wrong? We have in James statements about justification also then. And it explicitly says that justification is not by faith alone. In fact, this is what Catholics say. The the only time in Scripture you Protestants have the words faith alone, the words right before it are not by which isn't a good sign for your doctrine of justification by faith alone. So you can see why the argument can have so much power to a lot of people. And plus, it's very natural to think, well, it can't just be grace. There has to be something I'm doing or contributing, even if it's very small. But I do think when you look at the context of Romans 4, first of all, you can't come to any conclusion but that justification is by faith alone, right? It's so clear in that text. So what do we do? Now, there are a few different ways to treat the relationship between these texts, uh, which have been done in the past. One perspective is the one we find in what's called critical biblical scholarship. And you can hear in that that folks that are involved in that scholarly exercise do not believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible. They believe it's filled with errors and contradiction. And so they point to this as a case in point that you can't consider the Bible the word of God. Look at the obvious difference between James 2 And Romans 4. That's what they do. And so um, we don't agree with critical scholarship. I believe, we believe, the Bible is inspired and inerrant completely without errors or actual contradictions. In other words, we believe the Bible is self-consistent. So we approach the text. When we're reading and we get to James 2, our presupposition, which I believe is biblical, is that whether I fully understand this or not, it is the Word of God. And the Word of God does not contradict each other. So whatever I'm reading, I'm not going to put one text against another to come up with a doctrine. I need to study and meditate until the Lord gives me understanding in these things. We don't think that one of these two men is right and the other is wrong. That is not what we believe. I don't believe there's a contradiction at all between James and Paul. But it certainly does look like it, right, at first glance. In this critical scholarship perspective, one of the ideas they have, or the most prominent, is that, well, Paul is teaching justification by faith, and he's using the example of Abraham. And so maybe James has encountered Christians that are using the Pauline argument. Maybe they didn't hear from Paul directly, but they've heard uh, either that doctrine or a distortion of that doctrine getting around. And this distortion that they're believing is... Total antinomianism, which says, is a fancy way of saying, Abraham's justification was by faith without works, so we don't have to do any good works at all. We can do whatever we want. And James is responding to that. So Paul was in error, James is fixing it, or maybe James was in error, and Paul was fixing him. And James also uses the example of Abraham, of course, to correct Paul in that understanding. Because Paul didn't understand properly. So the texts contradict this isn't the word of God. We don't come to that conclusion. 
But we also don't want to play word games. We want to know what the text says. Both Paul and James were inspired by God and they do not contradict. Although there certainly could have been distortions of some kind. Although usually it went the other way. The distortions Paul is dealing with 90% of the time are that... um, you know, you, you, they're more Christians have to, to keep obeying the law in order to be made right with God. They have to have this mixture of grace and law. We're inerrantists, so we don't believe the text contradicts. So what do we do? What is James talking about? And again, both sides have difficulties with one text. Rome has the difficulty of dealing with Romans 4. We have the seeming difficulty of dealing with James 2, since they at least seem to contradict one idea, one place to start um, that points us in the right direction, because I do think there's some teeth here, is the belief of most of the early church fathers. You can even read about this very specifically, like as old as Eusebius. It's very early on in the church that differentiates in the Bible. And when I say this, don't let it scare you. Let me, let me explain it. That differentiates, they had this doctrine between primary and secondary texts in the New Testament. I'll give you two fancy words. You never need to worry about them or use them again. I'm just trying to make the argument. They, they saw the books of the Bible as either homo legumina or anti-legumina. The church fathers did not mean by making this distinction that there were certain, that some New Testament books were not inspired of God at all. That's, that's not what they meant. They meant that there were certain texts that were disputed and debated early on about whether or not they should be considered canon. right? So if there was debate over a book as to whether or not it should be included in the Bible, like James, or even Revelation or something, they would say that is anti-legumina. It's still inspired, it's still authoritative, but when we read difficulties in those things, we need to understand those difficulties through the homo-legumina, through what was not debated, what we know for sure, without any questions about whether or not it should be in there, we know these things are the Word of God. So you're using, basically that principle means you use the clearer texts to understand more obscure texts. And we do this without even thinking about it. So again, please don't hear in that that the early church fathers were like, James is really not inspired of God. That's not what they're saying. They're say- it is clear when you read the New Testament that God is more concerned that you and I know the words of Paul than that we have the words of Jude, right? In other words, you have one chapter from a man named Jude. You have 13 letters, the majority of the New Testament, from Paul. So obviously, there's a priority to Paul. And I would argue um, very foundationally that without Paul, you you can't understand the Bible. I've, I've tried to make this case before, but that's what they were saying. So one way is to say, uh, you can understand James by by reading Paul, right? Because we know we have one letter from James, we have 13 from Paul. That's all they were trying to say. I, I don't know that um, we need to make that argument, right? I, I think, it, of course, it can get problematic because it can get subjective. Well, I, I don't think Mark is more authoritative or more uh, clear than James. And so, you see what I'm saying? It could become very subjective. I think... What's more important in interpreting this James text properly is just in the text. When we look back on these texts, we have to remember this, okay? You and I live in the 21st century, the 20th century prior to that, most of us. 
we are looking at the Bible from the perspective of a developed doctrine, capital D, of justification, capital J. We have systematic theology books, systematic theology professors, tons of scholarship, seminaries. Our doctrine of how a person has been put into a right relationship with God is a topic in doctrinal truth. We have a very highly developed doctrine of justification. In other words, then, when you use the term justification, you are going to import into that term, whenever you read it, a very precise, codified doctrine. So, we are reading James, we read justification, and our brains go, you know, justification by faith alone apart from works. The doctrine of the Reformation. So, we import the doctrine into the term whenever we see it, and then that's how we try to understand the passage. We need to remember this, beloved. The apostles didn't sit down together and construct a systematic theology. In other words, they didn't write down, okay, here is here are the attributes of God. Here is justification. Here is sanctification. Here is redemption. They didn't do that. The early church didn't do that for a very long time. It's so commonplace today, right? Again, because we have... Uh, scholastics and all this, they didn't do that, however. So when we look at James talking about justification, the first thing we need to do is ask, okay, is he even using that term, justification, to talk about the same thing Paul is talking about when he uses the term justification? So were there different approaches to the doctrine of justification in the early church? And Paul is taking one approach while James is taking another popular one. No, rather, is James using language of righteousness that is very common in the Old Testament that both figures are using, but they're using it to talk about two different things. And we, because of our systematic theological categories, we tend to assume they are both talking about a doctrine that is the same doctrine. I don't believe that's what's happening here. I believe James is using the term justification in a different way than Paul was using that term. Remember this. Justification often has been and can be translated in Greek as vindication. We see this used often in the New Testament. Remember Jesus talking in Luke 7.35. Wisdom is justified by her children. What does he mean? He means vindicated. That's why other translations render it vindicated by her children, meaning that real wisdom is shown to be real wisdom when you see the fruit of that. Wise people making wise choices. Their, their, their choices vindicate the fact that they are, in fact, wise. So we have examples in the text, but also in literature, of the term being used to say vindicated. Sometimes it's translated justified, other times vindicated. This is said of Jesus himself in First Timothy. He was vindicated by the Spirit. That is justified, right? And we know that Jesus didn't need to be made right with God, but he was vindicated, justified in the Spirit by his resurrection. That's a very common translation of the same term. And if we do that, okay, we can't do it tonight for the sake of time, but if you were to read through 14 to 26 of James 2 and substitute vindicated wherever you see justified or justification, this text will start to make a whole lot more sense in light of what we know from Paul. So just, just two examples. Listen to verse um, 24. You see that a person is vindicated by works and not by faith alone. 
That sounds different, doesn't it? Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father vindicated by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So the reason this sounds so confusing or there's this big argument is because we are using this theological term justification in both places because they're the same word, it seems. And we're therefore assuming an exact alignment of the terms. We're saying, well, they're both using them the exact same way, so they contradict. And we, However, what is James talking about then? If he's not talking about how we're put into a right relationship with God, which he's not, what is he saying? James says faith without works is dead, which is a very typical Protestant doctrine. We believe that. We don't believe in what's called easy believism. We don't take that position. We aren't, although I think it's a false flag to just throw out the word antinomianism, because if you preach grace, you must be an antinomian, which means you're against any law, any regulations for the Christian. I've never heard anybody talk like these people allegedly talk. Like, like I've never heard somebody say with a straight face, well, now that I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. I don't know where that person exists. I'm sure they do. I'm sure there's whole groups of people that talk about that. I've never heard that. I've never had a believer tell me that. So we don't believe that, like, faith has no effect on your life. That, that's not what we believe at all. A dead faith is a faith that is not active, particularly in James, in love. Right? And, and hardly... Anyone is going to say that there is such a thing as saving faith that isn't active somehow in love or, or, you know, good works toward a neighbor. So we have this combination of dead faith, which is also, realize this now, is also given an example in the text. So we can know precisely what James is talking about. Look in particular at verse 19. What is it that these folks believe? You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So now we know, okay, many of these Christians, they're Christian in name only, apparently. What do you believe? I believe there's one God. Well, that's not saving faith, right? The demons believe that. So, so that's when it starts to, to make sense to us. That oh, uh, James is talking about something very different than what Paul is talking about. We see this, uh, or, or again, just staying with verse 19, is that how any of us tonight define saving faith? What do I have to do to be saved? You just have to believe that there's one God. None of us believes that that is the faith that saves, right? That's what James is after here. Do we even define faith as what is faith? It's the belief in one true God. No, we all define faith as Protestants in, in like three ways, right? Faith is the knowledge of the truth, assent to it or belief in it, and trust. And trust was at the essence of defining faith in the Reformation. How is it that a person is made right with God? The Catholics were saying uh, it's a mixture of, yes, there's faith and grace, but you also need to be doing good works. And at the end, you'll be justified if you've done enough. And the Protestants were saying, namely Martin Luther and those immediately around him at the time, were saying, no, faith is believing God's promise. That he will forgive sins and give righteousness based on his son alone. And that is how you're made right with God. They weren't talking about whether or not a Christian has to do good works. That's assumed because of texts like James 2. 
That should be a no-brainer. Like, if we're following Jesus, there are certain works that will flow out of us. That's naturally to be assumed. This implanted word in James 1, remember, implanted in us, it's going to grow. It's going to produce fruit. Parenthetically, real quick, the problems come for Protestants when we start trying to quantify that. Well, how much fruit? What are you doing? Are you doing enough? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? Are, are there enough good works? And we're doing something nobody in the Bible is doing. But we, we hurt ourselves like this. Back to this. We define terms of faith in terms mainly of trust. That's kind of the essence of justifying faith. We see that definition of faith spelled out in the exact example Paul gives to defend the doctrine of justification by faith apart from works, which is Abraham's trust in God's promises that he will there there will be a seed even though he's old and his wife is barren. Abraham's justifying faith was a heartfelt relational trust in the promise God gave him. By that alone, before he was circumcised or did anything obedient, he was counted as righteous. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, faith is shown externally. It's shown externally absolutely by means of works. Works are how we show our faith to the world, that it's there. They can't see our faith, right? But they can see our works. We vindicate our faith by means of the works we do in the world. So if, if, if there is nothing coming out of you that is the fruit of the Spirit, that is good works as the Bible defines them, then you have dead faith. James is not using faith in the same sense Paul is. Paul is talking about faith as trust. James is talking about faith as mere intellectual assent. He's saying that's not saving faith. If you say you have that, that faith is dead. Clearly it's dead. It's doing nothing to produce good works. You are horrible to poor people. And the reason is, is that your faith is nothing. You believe that God is one. Congratulations. The demons agree with you. You are as orthodox as hell is. That's what James is saying. Mere intellectual assent is not justifying faith. Again, the demons have that. That's James's example of the kind of faith he's talking about. He contrasts that with Abraham to make his point. So if all one has is a belief that there is a God, that isn't real faith. Real faith is vindicated by works like loving the poor. That is what differentiates mainly Catholics from Protestants. If that's helpful to you at all, Catholics tend to go. And when I say Catholics, I want to be clear about one thing. I'm talking about disagreeing with attacking the institution, the capital C. I can't speak for every Catholic person that goes to a Catholic church. I am in no position to judge their salvation. I want that to be clear. So I'm not demonizing people that go to Catholic churches. I'm talking about their dogma. Their doctrine that comes from the Vatican and Rome. And we can talk about all that some other time. But Catholics tend to go with James's definition of faith as what makes a person right with God. So that's why they repeatedly don't understand justification by faith. They can't get out of their head that faith only means assent to facts. But no, faith is something other than that. That's not what Protestants mean by faith. 
we follow Paul's definition of justifying faith, the doctrine that he explains in Romans and Galatians. So we just need to make sure we define our terms here. I hope this hasn't been way too fuzzy to understand. If, if what we mean by faith is what James means or what James is attacking, then no, we're not saved by that alone. We're not saved by assent to facts, right? But here we have the example of Abraham in James. If we think, this is, this is huge here. If we think James is trying to prove with the example of Abraham that he was justified before God by means of his works. So if that's, if James is actually disagreeing with Paul and trying to say, no, 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 Abraham was justified by works. If that's what he's doing, then why in the world would James go on to cite Genesis 15, 6, which says exactly the opposite? If you wanted to prove that we're justified by works, it would be very strange to quote Genesis 15, 6, which is what Paul did, where God says Abraham was justified by faith apart from works. So that would be a horrible argument for James to make. You know that you're justified by works, don't you? Look at the text where it says Abraham was justified by faith and not by works. You, do, do you see? That would be very bad, like illogically dumb, foolish arguing. Instead, what he's doing by using the example of Abraham offering up Isaac is demonstrating, just as he says in verse 18, it's showing that this is the case. It's true. Again, use the term vindicated. This was the indication of his... Of, of, Abraham was a friend of God. That's not in the Genesis text. James gives that term. James says that. And, and James is saying, how do you know that Abraham was already justified, already right with God? When God told him to offer up his son, he did it. Right? That didn't save or justify Abraham. It proved that Abraham was God's friend because he did what he was commanded. That's, that's what... The text is saying to us here. This was the indication of his being the friend of God. But but what so what does justifying what is the faith that makes us righteous? What does that do? The faith that brings us into a right relationship or or that faith brings us into a right relationship with God so that we are friends. That will demonstrate itself by works of love. This is, I'm, I'm not being condescending here. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to make the point. This is very, like, obvious. And again, I've been talking like it's not, only because we have this idea of a contradiction, allegedly, in our heads. All it's saying is that if you are justified, you would live a certain way. Like, if I have a friend that is my friend, I'm not going to beat them with sticks. Right, like that's all James is saying, and and but note, remember how how singular the context is here too. Like I don't want to hear about your faith in Jesus when you treat poor people like garbage. Don't it's I don't want to hear it. It's dead. You are at least acting like all you believe is that there is a God, and that's what demons believe. And so he's correcting this idea. That's how central that is. You know this idea of loving and serving the poor among us. So yes, our faith is vindicated by good works, right? But they're, they're not justifying us. 
They're vindicating us. They're vindicating our faith. That we are in a right, right relationship. Or, or let me back up here. So at the final judgment then, to be vindicated by our works, again, does not mean we are finally justified by our works. And again, I don't know who all you read or listen to, but I want to, I want to tell you something. I used to follow almost cult-like status a pastor named John Piper. I loved him. I have a picture with him that I, I used to have framed in my office. I've, I've, I drank everything the man said to this day. It's very hard for me to speak out against things he says because for so long he was like a spiritual father to me. And now he's on this thing of, of final justification. And others are too that I have their books and read them like Thomas Schreiner. Thomas Schreiner is a brilliant theologian. I don't understand what, but they, they're basically teaching that justification is not real until the very end when your works show that you did enough. I mean, I'm, again, I'm making it you know, very simplistic, but, but that's, beloved, no, you, you're, you're justified. You have peace with God now based on justifying faith, which is just the faith that God will do what he said. And so it's always in the air. We have to be so careful how easily works and grace are mixed together and can sound so orthodox and pious, but at the final judgment, when it's all said and done, what is going to be vindicated or how our works justify us or vindicate us, the genuineness of our faith, is because they'll show that we were in a right relationship with God because we did the works of His Son. And so the good we do flows out of who God has made us to be in Christ. If we've passed from death to life in Christ, it will demonstrate itself in good works. At the final judgment, those works will be manifested as demonstrations of the faith that we had. Even though all our works in the final judgment, no matter how many good works we did, will also be shown as having been done imperfectly. Even though that's the case, what do we see in Revelation? That we are still pictured as standing there covered in Christ's righteousness. In white robes in Revelation. Even though our good works were imperfect. God sees the evidences of our faith in the righteous robes we've been granted in Christ. So, let's take this big theological umbrella, bring it down to its occasion in this immediate context. If by grace through faith you have believed in Jesus Christ for your justification before God, you will stop mistreating and showing partiality to the poor. James doesn't say categorically that because they aren't doing these things, they must not be saved. He is telling them, however, that there is nothing right now vindicating their claim to be, to belong to God right now. That is what he's saying. So, he's right, is he right? Why would he write to them if they're beyond hope and their souls are damned? He's trying to repent them, to bring them back. You need to repent of this. If, if you have, if you've been made a friend of God by grace through faith in Christ, you're going to rethink how you're treating the poor. There's a way that people that follow Jesus live. So repent of your sins and change your behavior. Repentance is not changed behavior. It is God's work in us where we acknowledge we have sinned. That's repentance. We have to be brought face to face with the person of Jesus. 
and what a relationship with him requires of us since we actually have one. Paul will get to this in Romans 12 eventually. All this means is that good works that are Christ-like will exist in people who have been justified. This is not a text to bludgeon people for not doing enough works. You might not be saved. Faith without works is dead. How are your works? That, that's, that's not how we use it. All right, Because at any given moment, some of us Christians will be doing good works and some of us will be struggling just to get out of bed or just to pay the bills or just to not kill ourselves or hurt somebody else. Like, like the struggle in life is real. Some of us will not be in a period of doing a lot of good works. Well, what if I die during that time? I grew up believing, well, you're going to go to hell. No, you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. There are works that will flow out of that. How many? How many at a time? That's not at issue here. That's not at issue here. So don't use the text to do that to people. I've noticed that you're not um, doing a lot. You know, faith without works is dead. Well, don't look at your works to find your assurance. That there's there's no talk of quantity here. Like, yes, Christians will, will do good works. How many is not our concern. That's, this text isn't given to us so we can go around checking on everybody else to make sure they're actually justified. Because what's the basis in that kind of pursuit that works justified? That the faith is in the periphery when we start becoming sin sheriffs, right? When you do good works, don't write them down so that you can track your progress. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Thank God that he's producing his fruit in you through his spirit and keep walking. The, the timeline the Holy Spirit is on is not ours. And, and in Hebrews 10, we read that by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are currently being sanctified. So trust that the spirit is doing his work. What this text is saying is wake up. If you claim to follow Jesus and you treat the poor like garbage. I don't know. Right. It's very specific. Faith in Jesus Christ for salvation will inevitably have an effect on the way we live our lives and the people we become. We take doctrines like that and and try to do accounting with each other because our fleshly nature can't help it. We want to be able to prove and track how well we're doing so that we can have assurance. But this is just basic Christian math here, beloved. Justified people do good works because the Spirit dwells in them by grace through faith. We try to make sure ourselves and others are doing enough of these things. That's not at issue here. We are put into a right relationship with God and have peace with Him by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, period. And since that is true, our lives will now produce by the Spirit's power and prerogative what we could never have produced before, obedience to the royal law of love from chapter 2, verse 8. Now that we are in Christ, we can love like that. That's what James is after here. Remember how he talks? If you really want to fulfill the royal law, that's that's his context here. Where the word has been implanted, chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, it will grow even though we're still in the flesh. So don't worry about how big your tree is or how many bushels of fruit you have. You have peace with God through Christ. Lean into this. The Spirit is at work in you. Don't let somebody else measure your fruit. 
We will struggle with sin and we will do good works all throughout our lives. But we will never be justified, made right with God through them. It's simply that our faith will be vindicated, shown to be real by it. So walk by faith and not by sight. And watch the Spirit produce His fruit in you as He pleases. So there's a non-contradiction between James and Paul over how a person is justified. They're not arguing. James isn't arguing that. There's only a contradiction when justified people refuse to love their neighbors. How can that be? That is such an awful, awful contradiction. You say you're in Christ, but you don't love your neighbor. And again, if you don't love your neighbor tonight, I'm not telling you you're not saved, and neither is James. James is reminding us that being friends with God has certain results in our lives. Justified people refusing to love their neighbors are forgetting that Jesus loved even his enemies, even us. Believe the gospel that justifies, and you will do the work that is pleasing to God, and he will vindicate you on the final day.